Hello, and welcome to the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. It's been a little longer than I hope between episodes for the podcast, and I hope that you could forgive me for that. I had this little trip to France to deal with, managed to survive the man cold from hell, and a couple of super hard build weeks on the way to my last race of the season, Ironman Louisville, coming up in less than two weeks from now. But, lest you think that I have been completely unproductive during that time, fear not, my intrepid listeners, for I have some exciting news. First and foremost, I used some of that time to finally upload some new content to my new TriDoc YouTube channel. When I was in Nice for the 70.3 World Championships, I shot some video and stitched it together for a nice overview of the race, the venue, and some other assorted goodies. I hope that you'll head over there and give it a watch, and maybe even subscribe to the channel. As my race season draws to a close, I plan on taking some more time to get even more content up there that I hope will be useful to you. And if you have things that you'd like to see on there, let me know. Secondly, and this is most exciting, as of the time that I am recording this, I have somehow managed to establish a presence on Facebook. Yes, it's true. Only one episode after lamenting my inability to get on that platform, I have managed to get a page for the podcast on there. At least it was on there when I looked a few minutes ago. By the time you hear this, it's entirely possible that it will have been banned once again. But I'm hopeful that this will not be the case. At any rate, should it still be there, I'd be immensely grateful if you could head over to the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page and give it a like and a follow. On the show today, Trini Willerton is a wife, mom, and triathlete. She's also a survivor of a horrific collision while on her bike with a truck that landed her in hospital for more than a week and on the road to recovery for over six months. Well, she's back to riding and racing now and has decided to take her experience and try to ensure that no one has to go through what she did by personalizing the nameless and faceless cyclists against whom some motorists seem to have so much hostility. With her hashtag, it could be me movement, Trini is giving voice to a growing movement and asks motorists to recognize that we are all in this together. The triathlete Routal goes to another world championship, but this time it's of the off-road variety. The Xterra Worlds are held in Maui each year in late October, and is a highlight for mountain bikers and off-road triathletes. Kevin Coucher is both of these, and he joins me to discuss this iconic race. First, though, I have a medical issue to consider. Recovery is an important part of training for triathlon, especially as the volume and intensity get high. While recovery used to mean just resting, it's come to mean much more, with an entire industry springing up to help athletes get the most out of their downtime and return to performance as fresh as possible. One of the latest methods in this vein is cold water therapy, or cold water immersion. But as hot a topic as this is, is there any science to support its use? Why take a look and share my findings with you, coming right up. Training for a triathlon is an incredibly rewarding experience. As you slowly gain fitness, you layer on more and more miles until you find yourself putting in some pretty impressive training volume towards whatever your goal race or races might be during the course of a season. But all of that training has the potential to lead to overtraining or injury if you aren't careful, and this is why the science of recovery has garnered so much interest over time. Helping athletes recover efficiently and thoroughly has long been recognized as an important means of getting them to be able to perform maximally in both training and racing. Where in the past, taking a day off may have been seen as laziness or losing a step, it is now appreciated as a critical aspect of a well-structured training program to allow for training gains to be consolidated and muscle cellular adaptations to take place that can lead to better performance when efforts resume. But recovery has come to mean much more than just resting. Assisted recovery is all the rage for the highest level athletes in every sport, and an entire industry has sprung up to feed the demands of athletes looking to enhance their recovery time by speeding the elimination of chemicals built up in the cells as natural byproducts of high-level exercise, and to restore the building blocks needed to resume those efforts as soon as possible. Now, I've spoken of some of these assisted recovery methods on previous episodes of this podcast, including pneumatic compression boots, but today I'm going to look at another one. Cold therapy in the form of cold water immersion or cold water circulation garments are beginning to emerge as a new technology for recovery, especially for cyclists and triathletes. 
Recently, at the Ironman 70.3 World Championships in Nice, I visited the booth of German manufacturer Icebine, who have a product coming to market later this year that are well-fitted pants with an impregnated system of tubes that allow for 5 to 10 degrees Celsius water to pass over your legs for the purpose of cooling and passively compressing the muscles after a workout. You could see my conversation with the makers of the product on my video on the TriDoc YouTube channel that I posted a couple of weeks ago. A much more expensive and truly medical device is the Game Ready, that works on the same principle, passing ice water through a fitted garment. But the Game Ready has various garments available to fit on different areas of the body and is marketed much more as a therapeutic device after injury or a surgical procedure. At the other end of the spectrum are the Ice Legs, a product developed by Phil Gaiman. Rather than rely on any machinery, these are a simple garment that have pockets for reusable freeze packs that you put on your legs. I can't compare these to the high-tech solutions I mentioned earlier, but I can tell you that the price of Gaiman's garments is orders of magnitude lower, as would be expected given the simplicity of their design. Now before you break out your wallet and run to the interwebs to find any of these things, you could of course just head to the freezer, dump a bunch of ice in the tub, fill it halfway with cold water, and then just settle in. After all, that's really where all of this started. The notion of cold water therapy comes from cold water immersion. Sitting in an icy mountain stream after a hard bike ride just felt pretty darn good to the guys who tried it, and this morphed into bathtubs with ice in them, and then to these fancy, much more portable ice garments. But even before you try that, it's probably worth looking to see if there's any scientific evidence supporting all of this. Because, as always, just because something seems like it works and seems like it feels good doesn't necessarily mean that it will or does actually have any benefits. So, what does the science say about cold water immersion and cold water therapy? To find the answer, I did a literature search and came up with quite a bit. It turns out that ice water and cold water immersion has been a hot topic, pun intended, for quite some time. The results of the research, though, have not really been that consistent in any way, shape, or form. Let's first consider the theory. Why would ice garments, or cold water immersion, be beneficial? Researchers have proposed several theories for this, and a few have been tested. Many of the central theories behind the potential benefits of cold water immersion have to do with lowering core temperature. I'm pretty certain that I don't need to explain how high-intensity exercise raises body temperature, and how this is compounded when exercising in hot and humid environments. Well, as core temperature rises, there are adverse physiologic effects on the central nervous system, the muscle cells, and the cardiovascular system. Cold water immersion can help to lower core temperature more quickly and reverse some of the effects of body temperature elevation. The theory is that in doing so, athletes would be able to perform better on a second effort after using this kind of recovery. Unfortunately, the evidence here is a bit mixed. It is true that cold water therapy can help lower body temperature more quickly than if the athlete just rests or performs some kind of active recovery. However, in order to be effective, the water has to be really cold, on the order of like 5 to 10 degrees Celsius, the immersion has to include the torso and not just the legs, and the immersion has to be prolonged, on the order of 20 to 30 minutes, which is pretty difficult to tolerate at that temperature. Even then, Results haven't really shown any consistent benefit in performance on efforts that are performed 24 hours after the first one. Another suggested benefit to cold water therapy is in reducing cardiovascular strain. When the body is overheated, cardiac output increases in order to increase blood flow to the skin for shedding heat. With cold water immersion, blood vessels in the skin constrict, pushing blood volume back into the central circulation, reducing cardiac output. Some studies have verified that this does indeed occur, but to date, none have really shown that this is related to any specific physiologic benefit, nor to any performance benefits. During high-intensity exercise, metabolites such as lactic acid are produced and can build up in muscle cells. For optimal performance, those chemicals have to be cleared before the muscles can return to peak action. Cooling has been theorized to enhance removal of these kinds of metabolites and allow for more efficient restoration of a normalized intracellular milieu. Unfortunately, studies of this have not borne this out, and in fact, have shown that cooling is actually detrimental to performance of muscle cell function, specifically where it relates to anaerobic-type sprinting. Now, two other ways in which cold water immersion has been postulated to work to enhance recovery are by resetting the parasympathetic tone and by reducing inflammation. Now, you'll recall, if you heard my podcast discussion on heart rate variability, that parasympathetic tone is an important determinant of variability and a marker of a recovered state. 
Cooling is theorized to enhance parasympathetic tone and to increase heart rate variability. Although few studies have been done in this, so there's no evidence out there just yet as to whether or not this is a valid idea. With respect to inflammation, there does appear to be a positive impact on muscle swelling and white blood cell numbers in muscle cells. But as to how this reports to performance and whether or not it's any better to active recovery, this still remains undetermined. So those are the theories. Let's look at some of the studies that have examined the actual practice. In 2012, a meta-analysis published by the Cochrane Collaborative, and remember, a meta-analysis is a study that pools a lot of other smaller studies in order to get a large number of samples so that you can get a better result. Well, the Cochrane Collaborative put all these studies together into a meta-analysis and found that cold therapy in the form of garments or immersion did provide some improvement in athletes' self-reported symptoms of muscle soreness and fatigue. However, when it came to performance, cold was no better than placebo. An Australian study in 2014 evaluated the performance of 30 athletes after high-intensity exercise to exhaustion. Athletes were then treated with various recovery methods, including passive rest, active recovery, cold water immersion, or or warm water immersion, and in that study, there was no difference in any of the treatments with respect to the ability of athletes to perform exercise after the recovery period. On the other hand, a study out of Sweden from earlier this year again looked at athletes performing exercise to exhaustion, recovering in a variety of water baths of different temperatures, and then performing a second bout of exercise. In this study, there was again no difference in the performance of athletes, though those who were randomized to cold water immersion reported feeling less sore and tired. Their performance on repeat exercise was actually worse than those who recovered by other methods. So again, we see an improvement in well-being and an improvement in sort of subjective measures, feeling less sore, feeling less fatigued, but when it came to performance, no improvement and in fact, some worsening. Indeed, every study of any kind of good quality that I came across reported pretty much the same thing. Cold water immersion or cold water therapy makes athletes feel better but perform no better, or in some cases, actually perform worse than other methods of recovery. And there are many other studies that do suggest some benefits of cold water therapy, but most of those are older and of lower scientific quality than the most recent studies and the ones that I have cited here. In fact, this is more and more the party line across exercise physiology and sports medicine today. Essentially, cold water immersion provides improvement in subjective measures, such as soreness and fatigue, but does not improve or even harm subjective measures of of performance. Now, to be clear, the folks at Icebind, the manufacturer that I referenced earlier, they were pretty clear to me that their product was aimed more at this notion of well-being and subjective recovery. And I think so long as they stick to that messaging, they're justified in doing so because that's what the research supports. For athletes who are making use of cold water immersion in the hopes of getting something more out of it in terms of enhanced recovery for the purposes of improved performance, I'm afraid the science simply does not back this up. Do you have a question for me to answer on the podcast? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. I've talked a lot on this podcast about the unfortunate reality that we face as cyclists riding on the road that we have a legal right to. I have lamented the attitudes that too many drivers seem to share about cyclists being no more than nuisances and how police and the legal system all too often send the wrong message by blaming cyclists for collisions or letting drivers off with what amounts to no more than a slap on the wrist, even when a cyclist has been seriously injured by them. My guest today is another voice in the growing chorus of those who speak out against this serious issue. Trini Willerton is a triathlete, an ambassador for Kerr Sports, Newton Running, USA Triathlon, Team USA, and the Ironman Foundation. But more importantly, she's a wife and mother of five. And last year, while training for Ironman Boulder, she was struck from behind by a truck and was seriously injured, spending a week in hospital with multiple fractures and a collapsed lung. After that incident, she had a long recovery, during which she decided to do something in an effort to effect real change in the long-standing narrative that all too often ends in the erection of ghost bikes along the sides of our popular bike routes. Trini started the hashtag ItCouldBeMe movement, and she's here to tell me and all of you all about it. Welcome to the podcast, Trini. Hi, welcome, and thank you for having me, Jeff. It's a pleasure. So in a nutshell, what is It Could Be Me? So It Could Be Me is a movement that's trying to change the narrative between motorists and cyclists. I think that there's a lot of layers to the problem. Um, 
But one of the layers that I discovered was the dehumanization of cyclists. So I'm trying to let the world see who we are. I'm asking everybody to just make a short video and letting drivers that perhaps wouldn't have the opportunity to get to know us to do exactly that, to see that we are moms, that we are dads, and that we're on the roads and that we need to get come home safely. And that's what my mission is. Yeah. And I see that you've had some pretty great success with uh, a stream of videos with uh, cyclists who many I know and many I haven't uh, known and uh, uh, all telling a similar story that, hey, drivers, you know, please take your time, recognize that uh, I, I'm more than just uh, somebody who might be inconveniencing you for 10 seconds on your way to wherever you're going. Uh, I, I'm a real person. Yeah, I think that unfortunately, we live in a society that is just so concerned from from getting and getting things done and getting from place to place as quickly as possible. And that's where where we start, you know, getting into problems as far as the roads. What's your vision for where the movement can go? And how do you see it affecting change going forward? Well, my idea is to have this movement just the um, have a, a very long lasting impact. And I think in order to achieve that, we need to have several things combined, one of them being um, education. So one part is what we're doing right now and creating a visual and, and, and allowing all the motorists to see another side of, you know, what they typically see. Then the second part, and it's so important, it's education. And when I say education, I mean education for cyclists as well as motorists. I think sometimes it's very hard for motorists to understand how fast we could go. You know, that we are by law allowed to do certain things that unfortunately, you know, makes uh, makes us not be as tolerable for motorists. But for example, it is legal for us to, to ride to abreast and it's safer for us, you know. So uh, just laying out the rules and making sure that both sides have a mutual understanding of what's expected and on how we're supposed to behave. And at the end, and, and when we accomplish that, then I think there's very little um, space to not be able to understand what the respect when we say we need to respect each other, what that implies. And another part is the legislative um, aspect of it. I think it's very important to work with people that have the knowledge and the experience on how to make change. Um, I was very lucky to have been working with Bicycle Colorado this past semester, and I was involved in testifying. And, and the whole process was a huge, um, it was, it was very educational for me. And I got to really understand that currently the way the law was written, that it just, it was exactly how you said it. It was a slap on the wrist and there's so much work to be done. And that's why I think with these three elements combined, we can create long-term change, which is what my mission is. In your efforts then through legislation, what kind of uh, changes have you seen implemented? Oh, well, it's huge. We, I mean, I went through the process of, of testifying. Well, the bill was presented and then it got it passed several stages and there was an opportunity for me to testify before Congress. And I did that earlier this year at the state capitol. And then it moved forward. It, it's so much work and so many people are involved. But it's just being able to get out there and support, you know, because we we are needed. All these all these people that are trying so hard to make a change, they need us. They need our voices and they need us to to just to be able to create that, to see that we are living people. And as and when when the senators were able to see us, I think that that was huge. Now, as far as the bill that I was supporting, it was Bill 175, and it's the vulnerable user of the road bill. Um, when I was involved in, in my crash, uh, the law said that any careless driver that um, 
was involved in this would receive only four points on their license. That's like, I think, the equivalent of forgetting your insurance card. It's something absolutely ridiculous. And it doesn't really matter what happens to you as a vulnerable user. What I mean is you could lose the ability of walking. I have a friend that will never walk again, and his driver got four points. So it wasn't really the consequence. It was just the way the law was written. And unfortunately, that's what it was. So now in the state of Colorado, if a vulnerable user is hit by a careless driver, he will receive um, 12 points on his license, which means that they will lose their license for a year. And this was all due to Bill 175. Um, they will also have to pay restitution. Uh, they'll, always, they'll also be required to take um, a, a, a driver's education course that is to do Actually, the one that they have to take in the, in the state of Colorado was designed by um, Bicycle Colorado and Cyclists for Community, and it's designed to to understand the relationship between cars and cyclists, and you know prevent all these horrible tragedies from happening. And yeah, and community service. <laughs> So my guy, um, unfortunately for him, um, I was very um, passionate about really creating change. And well, unfortunately, from from my perspective, he still the the law had to apply the the law that was in effect when he hit me had to apply. But moving forward, it's not going to be the case anymore, and that's huge for me. It makes everything that I went through kind of make more sense. Well, that's terrific, Trini. That's uh, great to see that you're having that kind of impact uh, already uh, for such a you know really new movement. Uh, one of the things mm-hmm. I've noticed in looking at your videos and looking at your Facebook page, uh, it, it really does seem to be that you're preaching to the converted. And I know that changing behaviors is difficult, and uh, I worry that you are not reaching the really important audience, which is those people behind the wheel. So do you have any kind of, you know, thoughts about how you're going to get these messages to those people? Because let's face it, uh, you know, I heard about your, you know, efforts from other cyclists. I'm not hearing about it from drivers. And, you know, I think what you're doing is outstanding, but I really want drivers to see it. So how do you get your message to them? All right. So there are several stages to, or the way I, I've thought about this movement, there are several stages to it. And to me, using a hashtag and trying to involve the community per se was very important because what I'm asking them to do, um, and this is phase one, but in this phase, I'm asking everybody that makes a video to also share it. And that is key because those people Obviously, their network is not only of cyclists. I mean, they have people that love them that don't cycle and are drivers. And by reaching, you know, Uncle Bob and, you know, my cousin Mary, all of those people that do love the cyclist, I think. And I have received a lot of feedback from people saying, well, you know, I had this aunt that lives, I don't know, in Texas, and she's starting to send me information about what's going on in her city and before she would never have even thought about it. So there is that very, very important aspect of it. And the more people share their videos, then the more reach we're going to get to those motorists that are not within our bubble, you know, and that's super important to me. Also, right now, I've been talking about creating, um, a spot, uh, a TV spot. So um, I have very ambitious goals. I want to get on television. I want to get on buses. I want to get on mass media in general, because I think this has huge potential for growth. And the, it's such a, I, it's the movement's coming from a place of love. It's not coming from an aggressive place. Um, we're really truly asking for some sympathy and empathy and, Hopefully, um, you know, there, there'll be more than one person that says, oh, my gosh, you know, with each video, I think we can touch tons of people. And that I do believe in my heart that we're saving lives out there. 
Yeah, and I, I know you know Megan Hotman, uh, the cyclist uh, yeah, lawyer who's player. been on our pod, my podcast before. Um, mm-hmm. I have uh, spoken with her and uh, mentioned to her that I think one of the things, one of the messages that's very useful to get out to drivers is that, you know, cyclists don't just ride their bikes. Cyclists own cars. So it's not like we're coming at this from one side only. All of us drive cars. We all pay for the roads we ride our bikes on. We all know what it's like to be in a car behind a cyclist. It's not like we have no idea what drivers are going through when they have that sense of annoyance or nuisance or whatever it is. Uh, The difference is, is that we have been on our bikes. And so we have a much higher level of tolerance. And we also have a much higher level of respect for our fellow cyclists. Um, I, 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 I would, you know, encourage that message also to go out that, you know, hey, we're, we're drivers just as well as we are cyclists. So we understand. Yeah, I have a video from from a friend. And that's one of the things he says. He's like, you know, I'm a driver, too. And sometimes I see cyclists and, you know, I get I get impatient. But, you know, we have to cut, cut each other a, a break, you know, and and please just if you feel impatient, just flick me off is literally what he said. Just flick me off. We'll get the eye contact. We'll have interaction and, you know, you'll get it off your chest. <laughs> and obviously he was joking. But um, but yeah, absolutely. I think um, we can't lose sight of that. We're all behind the wheel at one point or another. And we just have to remember a couple of things that have become abundantly clear in this whole process. One, driving is a huge privilege. And I think sometimes we tend to forget that, you know, and we just have to be mindful that we're driving a machine that could be a killing machine. And we have to be paying attention. And we have if we're going to get behind the wheel, we have to have that commitment to keep everybody safe, including ourselves, you know, because unfortunately, one little second is all it takes. That's right. And in my work as an emergency physician at a major trauma center, I see this all too frequently. And it is incredible how people get behind the wheel of a two or 3,000 pound vehicle and in a fit of peak, just forget that, you know, they, like you said, are driving a potential killing machine. And that, you know, two or three seconds of letting anger overcome their decision-making reasoning can result in a lifetime of consequences. And that that's, you know, getting back to what I was saying before, you know, we as cyclists who also drive cars need to remember that. And I have ridden bikes with many cyclists who I think take their lives in their hands when they start getting aggressive with drivers. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, when I'm on my bike, whatever the driver says or, or thinks, you know, they win because they're driving the lethal machine. Uh, that being said, I'd love to, you know, be able to go out for a ride and just never have to worry about encountering a driver who I have to worry is going to become angry or is going to, you know, have it out for me. But um, we're not there yet. I'd love to think we're getting there. Besides the notion of uh, the things that you've described, TV spots, uh, potentially having this outreach to um, community, which I really applaud. uh, Do you have other ideas for where it could be me might be going in the future? Um, I would love, love, and this is something that would help us cross over. And I've been working really, really hard at it. Um, I need to find the support of a celebrity that also cycles, not a celebrity cyclist, but there's a ton of cyclists out there that are celebrities. And, you know, a lot of people aren't aware of this, but there's a long list. And if we could get someone that people already love, You know, people are already, I can name you five off the top of my head. One of them being Hugh Jackman, Matthew McConaughey, um, Jennifer Aniston, and Jennifer Gardner. There's so many people out there. And I think that once the people see that this person that they love so much is also out there, and it could be them, you know, I think that would touch people in a different way. But in the meantime, um, I... You know, Bicycle Colorado and I have so many of the same goals long term. And so I think we will continue to work as, along each other. And, and you know, I've had such a tremendous 
show of support from so many people that honestly, it's there. The possibilities are endless and there are so much fun stuff to do to, you know, to, to make this, I don't want people to be afraid to ride their bike anymore. I don't want to have that sentiment. I want, I want us all to live in harmony together. I believe that in general, people are really good. Um, I believe there's very few not good people. And I think there, it's time for all of us to reevaluate our attitudes in the road and our attitude toward life in general. You know, just kind of slow down and realize that we're not going to be here forever. And each moment can be magical and, and everybody's worth two minutes of your time. Yeah. Nope. Well, well the to... TriDoc is nowhere near that level of celebrity, but uh, I promise to get <laughs> uh, I promise to get a video to you uh, as soon as I can once I get over this uh, horrendous cold that I'm dealing with, so that I don't sound like I'm coming from inside a tunnel. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, Jeff. I mean, one thing that I do want to mention is I have not encountered a single person that I've asked for a video that has said no. So it's just getting through the buffers, and I know I am very tenacious. <laughs> and I, you know, there's this six degree of separation thing. So maybe I'll get lucky and someone listening to you can, um, can be the bridge and pass the message along. Absolutely. Uh, Trini Willerton is a triathlete, a wife, a mom, and a survivor of a horrific collision with the truck while out on a training ride. She started the, it could be me hashtag movement that I encourage you all to follow on Instagram and Facebook. And I will include the links to that in the show notes. I'm happy to say she has returned to racing, securing a slot to the 70.3 world championships in Taupo, New Zealand, a couple of short weeks ago at the Lake Placid 70.3 race. Thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast today. Oh, thank you so much. And um, I look forward to your video. And thank you for all your support. You know, it's amazing. And we will make we will make roads safer together. I promise you. And now it's time for the triathlete routine. That part of the show when I'm joined by a guest to provide a review and insights on a popular race, usually of the triathlon variety. But for this episode, we're going to mix things up once again because rather than stay on the usual hard road surfaces, we're going to be going off-road to discuss a race that my guest is familiar with. Kevin Coucher is a pharmacist in the emergency department that I work with at Denver Health. He is a longtime avid mountain biker, has tried to corrupt me into uh, his way of seeing the world as well, and he's also an occasional Xterra athlete. In 2016, he qualified for the World Championships in Maui, and he's here today to talk to me about that race. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Good to be here. So when we talk about the uh, World Championships, the Xterra World Championships specifically, they take place in Maui, and this is a race that you can't just sign up for, of course. You have to qualify. Now, the qualification process is not quite the same as it is in um, WTC events, you don't just get an uh, allocation of slots after the race. So help me understand, how does the uh, qualification process work for Xterra Worlds? Yeah, so the Xterra uh, classifications have, have changed over the years. We're currently on probably the third iteration of qualifications. Uh, but currently, you have to, there's a select number of races throughout the world that get qualification slots, uh, including, uh, obviously, if you win one of these championship, regional championship races, you get a slot. And slots do roll if you're a podium slot, but, again, it's it's race-dependent, and it's not the smaller races. The small local races have you accrue no points, and those don't qualify you for, for worlds. It's really you have to compete at these regional, uh, national races and either podium or win win outright and there's potential slots for if you win your your specific age group uh, as well in, in one of these regions so it's definitely more complicated than the, the WTC uh, uh, situation. So do you get your slot at the race or is this something you find out about after the fact? So this definitely differs as well so you'll know at the race depending on the race you're at and how many slots have been allocated for that regional race uh, which podium slots will will uh, gain acceptance and that could be sometimes it's just the the top slot or it could be the top two or potentially the top three it all depends on that regional race you're at uh, and they do so you so you'll know immediately if you've qualified uh, but then it, where it does vary is they do roll down uh, and they give athletes 
a couple of weeks to accept their their uh, their qual- qualification. Uh, so so it could potentially roll down. So if you're fourth, fifth, or even sixth, you can still get a roll down slot if you competed at that specific regional race. And everyone who finished above you had either already uh, qualified at another race or just wants to defer and not race uh, worlds that year. So let's use an example of, say, the Beaver Creek Xterra, which is one of these regional championships. Uh, let's say, you know, as an athlete, you finish fifth, and there were two known slots in that age group. You would know that on race day, that there were two slots. Correct. And then you go home and, you know, what, three, four weeks later, you get an email that says, hey, congratulations, a slot rolled down to you. Precisely. Yep. And that's uh, what has happened to me uh, one other year um, uh, for which I was able to qualify for Worlds. Exactly. I think I placed fifth at Beaver Creek and and for whatever reason, those folks above me in the top three uh, happened either previously uh, gain acceptance uh, or just deferred that year. Okay. And are there other means of getting qualification to the world? So the only other means would be uh, pros. So obviously, if you're a pro, you can submit a request to race uh, Xterra Worlds. So they'll, they'll grant you acceptance based on whatever criteria for that is. Um, and then you could also just uh, um, go into the, uh, the lottery every year that opens in January and submit a, a lottery uh, um, request. And it just goes into the big lottery and hope, hope you get lucky to get in. So that, that, that's really the only, the only three ways to, to get into Worlds. Do you know how many slots they choose from the lottery? I think it's, uh, they have it posted on their website, but I think it's 200. Oh, they, so it's they a let, number. They let 100, 1 to 200 in via the lottery than everyone else's qualif- qualifications. And how many people uh, take part in the Xterra World? So they say that 800 uh, athletes are present uh, in Maui for that uh, the World Championship race. Uh, Eight hundred and two hundred of which are lottery. That's that's a pretty uh, sizable representation then. Yeah. Yep. And if you get a slot through the lottery, do you have to validate that slot by uh, participating in another Xterra race first? No. So there's actually no qualifications to get to to submit for the lottery. Uh, you just, but you do have to submit payment uh, sooner rather right. than later uh, to to uh, hold your slot. Uh, but you can still race throughout the year and still gain acceptance, uh, which then you would probably, if you were to win or podium at say Exeter Beaver Creek, but you already got in via the lottery, then that would give another participant an option because you would you would defer that that qualification because you're already you're already signed up. Uh, for the, for the for the worlds. Okay, so let's change our focus then to uh, the actual location of the race. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it takes place on Maui, but but where exactly is it? So the race is uh, uh, at the Ritz Carlton at Kapalua Resort, uh, which is uh, the northern northwest part of the island. Uh, which is recent. Uh, they moved it there from from the southern southern east eastern part of the the island about. Uh, 10, I believe 10, 10 plus years ago, uh, they used to hold it in a, in a different venue. Okay. And it's always in October, late October? Yes, late October, early November. In terms of uh, travel and uh, gear transport, uh, I imagine, are, are there bike shipping companies like Tri-Bike Transport that, that actually serves this race, or do people have to get their bikes there on their own? So I'm only aware of just shipping uh, via your airline or, you know, um, um, some other uh, route of tra- of, of uh, shipping. Uh, I don't believe tri-bike transport, or at least I've never utilized them or heard anybody, uh, because you can't obviously drive to, right. to Maui. <laughs> so that it would make it a little difficult. But but it's pretty easy. Uh, Maui Airport, easy to get in and out of. Uh, and uh, and it's very close to the, to the airport. The resort is only a, a, a another 45-minute drive from the airport. So pretty easy to get in and out of there to the Maui Airport. And in terms of logistics uh, for uh, where to stay, uh, I imagine there are alternatives to the Ritz, or do most competitors actually stay on site? You know, I think a lot of, certainly there's tons of accommodation being a resort town. Uh, the Ritz is right there. We actually just stayed off uh, in, in an area called Turtle Bay, which is right next to the Ritz, really, but it just gave us uh, an entire house instead of the hotel accommodations at the Ritz. But there's just tons of condos and, and other accommodations that the athletes stay in. And you really, I really found it uh, that it was a, a big mix of, 
uh, people just kind of staying everywhere in that area. But we, we were really close. You could ride your bike to the, to the venue on race day, uh, ride the course. Uh, it was real easy to get, get to navigate and get in and out of. So it's not uncommon for uh, participants who are racing in Kona for the Ironman World Championships to try and get there as early as possible, trying to climb, uh, acclimate to the heat and humidity. Uh, is it pretty similar with the um, Xterra World Championships? Do people try and get there as early as possible? Yeah, I definitely see the uh, the road, you know, the Kona Kona athletes there already. At least when when I've been there, they've been there training, and, and I see it on their their social media feeds when they've arrived in Maui to prepare for the the Xterra. And you know, certainly it's a different type of race too. Being off road, they have to they've been focusing on the road aspect, but now they have to quickly transition to the the off road skills that they're going to need for race day in Maui. And do the athletes like yourself who just show up for Xterra, do you try to get there also as early as possible? Yeah, they certainly let you, you ride the course uh, a few days in advance. Uh, so we got there three or four days early, uh, certainly so we could jump on the course and certainly take care of any um, uh, mechanical bike issues if we had had any in transport, but luckily none for me. But uh, yeah, it's really nice to get there because the humidity is something we don't experience out in Colorado that often and that's certainly uh, a factor factor in Maui and it's Hawaii so I mean if you're going there with a spouse of course your spouse was racing as well but if you're going there with a family or you know a spouse uh, there's lots to do lots to see staying there before uh, or after is obviously recommended because uh, it's Maui Right. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Let's shift our attention to the course itself. I, I know that uh, the bike course has been changed. I believe this year is the first time they're using a new bike course. Yes, new course. This uh, year. Do you know much about it? So they they had a few years of really bad weather. So they had to transition the course from what, what had historically been on private lands. Uh, but due to the bad weather, a few years in a row, it really destroyed these this property and, and really. They couldn't maintain the property to prepare it and and build trail that so it could accommodate these heavy rains that they get. So on on race day, the the course became pretty sloppy, uh, both in terms of the trail, but also it just wasn't a an ideal situation for spectators uh, or the athletes themselves. Uh, it didn't it wasn't ideal race conditions. So they did transition a little, little bit lower down on the the mountain to uh, incorporate. Um, some of the more local lower trails that could easily easily be built up uh, and developed to accommodate both any types of weather, uh, but also a really nice race race environment for the racers and spectators. So it's kind of um, uh, it should be an improved an improved bike course this year oh, based on those changes. Well, that's great. Well, let's focus first on the swim. It's an open water swim and uh, it's Olympic distance, so it's a fifteen hundred meter uh, swim then. Correct. It's uh, two, basically uh, uh, an M format. Okay. So you swim out to the buoy, back into the beach, back out to another buoy, back into the beach. And what's the surf tend to be like? So it's usually uh, uh, pretty mellow uh, in f- the Fleming Beach area where, where the swim is uh, is held uh, because it's in a nice little cove. But certainly, like I said, that we had some bad weather years and the year I was there, we had some five, six foot swells and waves, so certainly not ideal swimming conditions. And it, unfortunately, some people didn't even didn't even participate in the swim. Uh, so we're 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 DQ'd before the race really had even started, uh, which is certainly unfortunate. But uh, but yeah, so it, it, it's usually calm, but certainly. It can has the be, potential yeah. for some, and some it's pretty big warm water, so not no wetsuits allowed. No wetsuits, correct. And uh, is it? A, do they start it as age group start? Is a, how, how is the start handled? So yeah, the starts uh, pros go first, and then and then they split it male female. Uh, so my year, they actually did all males and then all females. So was, the pros went first, all males went second, and then all the females went third. Uh, this, uh, I believe the last year they switched it up to just do age group starts. So now it'll be male, female age group starts after the pros, right. after the pros take off. Yeah. That probably makes it a little, uh, more manageable for the rescue folks in the water and also <laughs> for the swimmers, I would imagine a lot more comfortable. Uh, okay. So you come out of the water, I imagine in the water, the water's crystal clear, probably similar to Kona. Saw some turtles. And, yeah. Lots of stuff to see. Keep you occupied. <laughs> Get out of the water. It's a sandy beach. Uh, no rocks to worry about. It's no. fairly easy exit. Very easy exit. And then run up the, 
the paved bike path to to, to T1. Okay, so uh, you get your your gear, you're out onto your bike, and now, of course, it's a newer course. Do you have uh, much intel on what that's going to be looking like going forward? Is there a lot of elevation gain, a lot of single track? Yeah, so it's supposed to be mostly single track. Previously, they had a little bit double track, uh, which uh, ultimately got pretty destroyed with the weather so moving it lower down on on the island it's supposed to be mostly all single track and it's a 10 mile loop so they're going to do two loops uh, for a 20 mile uh, course and it's supposed to gain uh, roughly about 1500 feet per loop so that's pretty (laughs) pretty significant climbing which was more than than the old course Uh, so a lot of buffed out uh, single track in the trees so it could be a little dark and loamy uh, some slick, uh, slick piece, uh, you know, just due to the, the, the ground cover could be a little slick. So I think it uh, should set up for some really exciting racing, uh, and really, uh, should optimize that, uh, you know, all of the skills being able to have to ride on single track in the trees, roots, rocks, and potentially all, all the other racers that you'll, you'll have to contend with. So it should be pretty exciting. Now, with a 10-mile loop with 800 competitors, is there a chance for it to get real congested on the second loop? It could be, and they they purposely built into this new course some areas, nice areas to pass, so it would would lend itself to some uh, more a more improved race experience for the racers. So so uh, without obviously riding the new course, some of it is on the old course. So I think I do remember it was certainly wide enough in some areas you you could pass if it did get pretty congested in there and um usually this is the time when i ask if there's any danger points on the course but it's a mountain bike course so basically from start to end it's just danger (laughs) (laughs) uh okay um obviously finishes back up at uh, the same transition point as uh exactly right right back down at the ritz and then has the, has the run course changed, or is the run course the same? The run courses uh, should be the same. Okay, um, so it's a 10K run, and uh, are we dealing with, uh, I guess, a trail run that uh, I'm sure has substantial amounts of elevation? Yeah, the trail run, no different than the bike. Uh, it actually uses uh, the same network of trails, not obviously the same trails as the bike, but but right next, right, very close to the, the mountain bike course. So uh, you start off hitting single track, you're in the trees, uh, which will is, is a welcome um, due to the to try to get out of the heat in the sun uh, after that grueling bike uh, bike course. But so you'll be in the trees, nice and loamy again, uh, some single track, but some big climb right out of the gate. So you're going to climb a, a, a few hundred a few hundred feet in, in the first mile or two, uh, and then you're going to uh, kind of loop around the upper the upper trails and. Um, again, it's mostly single track for the run. Um, really do they have no. aid stations out there? So they do. They, they have an aid station every, I believe, um, two miles on the, on the run. Um, so, uh, so there's certainly some, some aid out there, okay. uh, which, which certainly in a, in the Maui heat, um, yeah. And I imagine like, you're dealing with similar weather conditions that we have in Kona, which is just basically, you know, predictably hot and humid with maybe rain. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, it's, I, uh, Certainly, being out in Colorado, no moisture whatsoever, no humidity. But Maui was a completely different animal. I was completely soaked. It felt like I just got out of the drink the entire time yeah. on the bike and and the run. So um, certainly benefited from having those aid stations where I usually don't don't take any aid in a short race like this. But but certainly was going to uh, out in Maui and even felt myself starting to cramp up a little bit towards the end of the race. Obviously, you know. Uh, kind of a bucket list kind of race. I mean, this is the big one for Xterra, uh, you, you know, one that you'd obviously recommend. Certainly. I, I mean, I think it was Beaver Creek, which is our, I consider our home course, uh, is is a fabulous course, but Maui was ten, tenfold that uh, in terms of the experience. The course was fun, challenging course. The atmosphere is fabulous with the other racers uh, and X, the Xterra uh, organization does a great job of putting on this event. The volunteers were fabulous. They're, you know, holding it right at the Ritz, just a great venue, um, tons of space, and uh, so, so certainly it would be something that we'll we'll probably go back to um, maybe in the next year or so. 
um, if I, if we can get qualifying slots again. Uh, but I'd certainly tell anybody who's into the off-road Xterra scene that this is a certainly a must a, a, a must do race um, uh, for sure. Just it totally trumps even the best of the the regional races like Xterra Beaver Creek or 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 out in Utah and at Ogden, which are were certainly first class events in and of themselves. And you're done because it's an Olympic distance. I mean, it, the, the start is early i gather the start must be seven or eight a.m you must I think be it's not yet i think it's like eight or nine yeah and you're done by noon i guess totally yeah, yeah so you, you can actually still go sightseeing with the family and yeah. hit the beach and uh trade war stories with other other athletes at that uh maui brewing company afterwards too it's great <laughs> well kevin coucher is a pharmacist here in the emergency department at denver health works with me and uh i am always uh, game to hear about his exploits on uh, the mountain bike maybe not so game to find out myself uh in real life because uh, i'm yeah i've almost died a couple of times riding with him but uh i am uh, very happy to have benefited from his experience and uh very glad that he was able to join me on uh, the TriDoc podcast today. Thanks for being here, Kevin. Thanks, Jeff. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references, as well as to everything else discussed on the show, can be found in the show notes on my Facebook page and at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. Don't forget to check out and subscribe to the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel for a video from the 70.3 World Championships in Nice. And you can now go to the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, where you can give it a like and a follow. If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, please email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.tridoccoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another listener question for me to answer, an interview with one of the SBT Gravel Race organizers, Ken Banesh, and the Triathlete Rutal will go tropical with a look at Ironman Cozumel. Until then, train hard, train healthy.